Hello everyone. I hope you've all been keeping well this past month. Sorry I kept you waiting until the very last minute with the November edition of the Economic History Podcast, but I hope you'll agree with me that it's been worth the wait. In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Professor Robert Gordon, somebody who I've admired a very long time and I've wanted to have on the show, and someone who has produced a work in the rise and fall of American economic growth that I know will last through the ages. The book is a tour de force of American economic growth since the Civil War, contrasting different periods, documenting technologies, how some technologies get picked up in productivity statistics, how others dramatically improve standard of living, and what the future holds in terms of headwinds to economic growth. Now, Robert is a macroeconomist, but I think anyone who reads his book will agree that this combines the best of economic history and the best of economics all in one. And it is no wonder that Bloomberg named him as one of the 50 most influential people in the world right now. For more than three decades, he's been a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he's based at Northwestern University, where he is the Stanley G. Harris Professor in the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics. Now, in the last section of the book and in the last section of today's discussion, we discuss some headwinds that may affect American economic growth and indeed OECD economic growth in the coming decades. There is sort of a, a slight update to the book in a new paper Robert has written with Hassan Syed, and it's called A New Interpretation of Productivity Growth Dynamics in the Pre-Pandemic and Pandemic Era US Economy, 1950 to 2022. And that's a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper. So I hope you all enjoy my chat with Professor Gordon, and I'll see you in another month. Professor Robert Gordon, thank you very much for agreeing to do this with us today. On the Economic History Podcast, I've been plucking up the courage to ask you on for a very long time, so this is a true honour. So I'll start off with the usual question before we get into things, and that is, how did you start off looking into or getting interested in economic history in the first place? Well, somehow I got interested in history as a child. I remember that in the third grade, I read all the books in the elementary school library on the Civil War, uh, the American Civil War. Um, and I've always been interested in military history. But I'm not a professional economic historian. Um, I don't teach economic history uh, courses. And my main field is macroeconomics. Uh, in my career, I've studied uh, inflation, unemployment, productivity growth. And so the overlap there is with productivity growth, which, of course, has a long history and is a, a main feature uh, of the book that we're going to be talking about. Um, and uh, what got me interested in this was uh, when I was in graduate school, I had a summer job as a research assistant, and the uh, a, a big book had just come out with the productivity history of the United States back to the Civil War. And I noticed something when I was a, a research assistant that has proved to be a very fruitful question, and that is I noticed that um, according to the growth models, the main sources of growth were capital and labor. Uh, but I noticed that in the United States history, there had been this huge increase in the productivity of capital. And since capital is part of the calculation of total factor productivity, there had been likewise a step jump upwards in the total factor productivity of 
of uh, the economy. Total factor productivity is how much output we get for the inputs of both labor and capital. And since the capital had not been growing and output had been growing a lot, uh, there was this great upsurge. So what caused it? Um, that was what got me into uh, the kind of questions that we're going to talk about today. Well, I think you've already answered my second question, which was, was there any book or paper that inspired you? But were there any others? Well, in writing my book, uh, of course, I uh, looked at hundreds of books. Um, and the one that stands out, uh, the one that I remember vividly, um, including remembering its author and its title, is a book by Anne Green called Horses at Work. Uh, because the one of the biggest differences between the late 19th century and the uh, entire 20th century was the replacement of horses by internal combustion engines, both tractors on the farm, autos for personal travel, trucks uh, and buses for uh, carrying cargo and passengers. So um, horses at work is such a wonderful evocation of all the different aspects of living with horses uh, instead of with motor cars. And it helps to bring us back to what is going to be one of your um, next questions, I'm sure, which is what life was like uh, in the late 19th century. Okay, well, let's jump right into that, because that's where you begin your book, right after the Civil War. You start your book at 1870. Can you then describe to us what the US economy looked at at that point and what what sort of the standard of living and the standard of work was like, if you want to take it from here? Well, the biggest difference was compared to today. Today, 1% of our economy is devoted to growing agricultural produce. In 1870, about half our economy, half the labor force, half the population was on farms. And those farmers had a very tough time uh, because they uh, had only horses or mules to help them with the plowing. They had no agricultural machinery at all. Uh, the combine had just been invented. The tractor really was not uh, invented yet. The early combines were drawn by horses. So the idea of a tractor that propelled itself didn't really uh, become relevant until the 1920s. Um, in urban America, perhaps the greatest difference was the lack of electricity, uh, the uh, fact that when the daylight was over, uh, that pretty much did it for the ability to do productive work because light was based on candles, kerosene lamps, whale oil lamps. Um, and in addition to that, another one of the biggest differences was the lack of running water and the lack of indoor bathrooms. Uh, so uh, houses were uh, what to, by today's standards would would look like shacks with outhouses behind them. Um, people lived in apartment buildings with communal uh, facilities that did not involve uh, running water or waste pipes. Uh, those were two of the, the main differences besides the reliance on horses that I mentioned before and the uh, the fact that if we, if we want to think about um, one of the big differences between then and now, uh, is the the horses deposited their um, their meals on the streets, and there had to be a continuous effort uh, to clean up the streets, and that was, of course, one of the very many unpleasant jobs uh, that people were forced to uh, choose as their occupations. 
one of the narrative arcs sort of running through your book, now that we're talking about quality of life, quality of work, was that gross domestic product cannot measure these sorts of things outside of the working life. So you've mentioned, and in your book, you talk about pleasant and unpleasant jobs. But one of the things that you can't measure with GDP is the quality of leisure time. Can you give some examples? You've already touched on some of the improvements in these sort of unobserved features of life, sort of taking us up to the period just before World War II. Um, well, I think I think the ones that I mentioned before are the main ones. Uh, the transition to electric light, uh, which made it possible to be productive in the evening. In the winter, of course, the sun sets at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, uh, and that opened up the entire evening uh, to productive activity, either productive leisure, reading books, uh, with much more light available to read them than by candlelight, um, and uh, work in the evening. Multiple shifts uh, could be um, hired to work in the same factory. Uh, the transition from outhouses to bathrooms and running water and sewer pipes took place in urban America between 1870 and 1930. Um, and so uh, GDP, the measure of our national output, uh, just does not include the enormous benefit of light, the enormous benefit of running water, and the enormous benefit of not having all that uh, horse deposits all over the streets. Uh, nobody counted in GDP the improvement in life by having cleaner streets. Another thing that you talk about, particularly with reference to that era in the book, which kind of intrigued me as I read it, was that you kept emphasizing this idea that a lot of the inventions, particularly around this time, 1890s onwards to 1920s, are sort of one-time only benefits to human living conditions and indeed productivity. Can you just give us a little bit more detail on what you mean by this concept of one time only and why that's so important? One of the best examples is uh, airplanes. Uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright invented the airplane in 1903. We had the first commercial air travel in the late 1920s. Um, air travel began to replace steamships and uh, railroad travel in the 1950s. Uh, but in 1958, uh, we made a, another leap forward with the jet plane in the form of the Boeing 707, uh, which could go 600 miles an hour just under the speed of sound. Um, that was a one-time invention uh, because it turns out we can't go faster than the speed of sound over land because the sonic boom is too disruptive. Um, and so we uh, we made it from uh, 1903 to 1960, and we haven't gone any faster since. So, so that was a one-time invention. And by the way, let me mention uh, that we went from 1903 to 1969 when we landed a man on the moon. An amazing amount of progress in such a short period of time. But we haven't gone back to the moon since, and I think that's a great example of the slowdown in technical progress and also the fact that we exploited the most um, the, the most uh, feasible inventions first, uh, it's much easier to go to the moon than it is to go to Mars. Mars is just too far away. <laughs> and people would be uh, would go when they're young and come back when they're old. It would take them so long to get there. Uh, so we're pretty much finished with space travel as much as you might read to, to the contrary in science fiction. 
So the whole use of airplanes is is an example of something that uh, was a one-time only invention. Of course, um, the motor car, the ability to go at the fastest safe speed, which is 70 or 80 miles an hour, um, combined with the interstate highways that made it safe to go that speed, that was a one-time only uh, invention. Uh, electric light was a one-time only invention. We keep improving electric lights, making them more energy efficient with the compact fluorescence and LED lights. And we they're, they're much cheaper in terms of the number of hours of light we get from a light bulb than they used to be. So we continue to improve efficiency, uh, but the basic invention was something that we couldn't do more than once. I couldn't believe how much technological history there was in that book. You not only researched the numbers, uh, collected your own numbers to do this, but you actually gave very good histories of the technologies involved. Uh, it's a really detailed book, and I would I would recommend it to anybody interested not only in economic history, but technological history. It's, uh, it's really quite something. Something that often gets overlooked in the productivity numbers. You mentioned total factor productivity to begin with, uh, and technology technology is what we often associate with total factor productivity. But two major changes that you mention in your book uh, concern the workforce, one of which is sort of the move towards the assembly line method, and the second is the move from local stores to larger retail and department stores. I hadn't thought about this, but could you just give us an idea about what this meant for the productivity numbers, these these moves of the labor force. Well, I I think you you need to go back to the 19th century, and I've already mentioned the uh, the very tough life on the farm with uh, all of that land to plow and harvest with only the horse or the mule uh, to help you out. So you were outside in the worst weather conditions. Uh, because of the lack of fertilizer that was invented later or the uh, lack of um, insect repellent uh, chemicals, uh, the average farmer in the late 19th century was beset by drought, by plagues, um, and it was a truly difficult life. Factory workers were exposed to extreme heat um, because of the lack of machines. Uh, their jobs were physically tougher. They had to do a lot of lifting and pulling and tugging of things that are now uh, done by machines. Uh, the assembly line made work more efficient. Um, you stood still at a position as the car went by you down the assembly line. And so physical difficulty was replaced by boredom doing the same exact rota rotation of your hand and your muscles. Uh, multiple times every minute or every hour. The development of the uh, department store and the modern supermarket uh, came beginning in the late 19th century. Uh, the first A&P was, I believe, in 1915. Um, in the old days, if you wanted to buy food, you'd have to go from the butcher shop and then walk down the street to the baker. In each case, you would have to stand in line and then have the meat cut or the bread provided to you over the counter. Um, after you stood in line, you would pay cash for the bread, and then you would have to go on to the fruit and vegetable uh, market and pick those things out and pay for them separately. So there was a great deal of inefficiency for the consumer. 
uh, supermarkets gradually uh, put that all together and centralized the checkout so you only had to pay once. Uh, and that was an accomplishment of the 20s and 30s, an example of one of the many improvements that was already uh, in place before World War II. In my book, I divided in half at 1940, which is uh, halfway between 1870 and 2010. Uh, and uh, most of the things we're talking about were well underway by 1940. To break up that first period, the period 1870 to 1940, how did the GDP and productivity growth numbers compare with what came after World War II? And what were the sources of growth that you looked at in your growth accounts for the first period? The chronology for inventions is a little bit different than the chronology for productivity growth. Um, as the great economic historian Paul David wrote about 50 years ago, uh, it took about 40 years for the invention of electric power uh, and the enormous efficiency it brought to the factory by eliminating large steam engines and systems of rubber and leather belts and pulleys that brought the power to the individual workstation. Instead, electricity made it power for each individual worker to have his or her own machine. Uh, that transition uh, took until the 1920s. It was only in the 1920s that we got the real application of electric power to manufacturing. Um, and likewise, the history of productivity growth is actually, it goes in three stages. Productivity growth was in, in the period covered by the book. Uh, in 1870 to 1920, productivity growth was rather slow at about 1.5% a year. Then from 1920 to 1970 is a 50-year period. Productivity growth doubled to 3% a year. Uh, and then on average since 1970, productivity growth has been again at about 1.5% a year. And it's been even slower. It was faster than that. Um, with the arrival of personal computers and the internet in the late 1990s, but it's been slower than 1.5% for most of the time since 2010. In the immediate decades after World War II, you do talk about immense initial improvements in things like healthcare uh, and education, with uh, which Claudia Golden and others have written about. Um, what were the kind of standout changes to those features of economic life and what were the challenges that subsequently arose? Well, let's take education and healthcare separately. Uh, in, 10 per, in 1900, only 10% of American uh, Americans had finished high school. Uh, and the percent that went to high school increased enormously uh, from 1900, about 10%, till uh, by 1975, it was up to about 85%. So transition to an educated population that was able to read, able to understand the function of a democracy, uh, and to be able to apply their education to their work whole 20th century up to the mid-1970s. The transition to college uh, took place longer. Um, around 1900, only a very small fraction uh, of the population had been through a four-year college, only uh, two or three percent. Um, that's increased very gradually without a sharp transition uh, until it's about 35 uh, percent today. But we still have two-thirds of the population that is, does not have a college degree. And that 
um, brings us to a number of problems that we'll probably uh, talk about later. You asked about medical care. Uh, back in the late 19th century, there was no rules and no regulation of medical care. Uh, the people who claimed to be doctors would be nowadays described as quacks. There was all sorts of um, unregulated chemicals um, advertised as cure-all drugs. Uh, even heroin was uh, prescribed over-the-counter uh, as a uh, cure for common ailments. The professionalization of medical schools and the doctors that came out of them began in the 19 around 1905 with the uh, so-called Flexner report which was a big report on the scandal of medical education at that time and by World War II uh, medical education had been uh, transformed remember that if you started in 1870 uh, you did not have either of the two big A's you had no antiseptics to cure infections and you had no anesthetics to cure the pain involved in surgery. Um, and the anesthetics and, and antiseptics uh, were invented, again, in the, uh, one of the great inventions of the late 19th century. Um, and then we had uh, the first antibiotic, sulfa, in the late 1920s, and penicillin during World War II. Uh, so by the time we came out of World War II, we had a much more scientific, professional medical care system beginning to be equipped with some of the drugs, uh, including the prosaic aspirin uh, that was invented in the late uh, 19th century. After 1970, I think we're all familiar with a slowdown in the West, but you start to document it also in the US, uh, the end of Bretton Woods, the end of the Golden Age in Europe. In 1970 or after 1970, what are your major reasons or your viewpoints for this decline? I think it's really very simple. I think it's uh, the the low-hanging fruit had been picked. Uh, the major improvements in automobiles had taken place. Uh, the automobiles of the 1950s look a lot different, and they're a lot better than the automobiles of the 1920s. Uh, we had the interstate highway system that was built uh, between 1958 and 1975, and so that allowed average speeds going between cities to go from 30 miles an hour to 60 or 70 miles an hour. That was largely complete by the mid-1970s. Uh, we, we had, as I mentioned before, the uh, enormous transition from railroad travel to air travel and the jet plane. Uh, that was complete by 1970. Almost all the commercial aircraft were jet planes, including the smaller ones. Um, by, uh, by 1970, the rolling out of electricity, uh, both the generation of electricity and the use of it in industry had reached uh, a uh, sort of a exploitation of what was possible by the 1970s. Um, and of course, as I mentioned before, um, electric light um, was around in the late 19th century and had uh, not changed much uh, since then. The antidote often to these kind of sluggish eras of growth or slowdowns or whatever you want to call them would be some major general purpose technology. How would something like information and communication technology, if we think of the microprocessor being developed in the early 70s, how did the impact of that general purpose technology affect living standards uh, and, and, and GDP numbers, for example, 
when compared to those inventions that you already mentioned in the earlier period, pre-World War II? I mentioned before that productivity growth was around 3% between 1920 and 1970, and then it fell by half. But we did get a revival uh, that is dated in these statistics as occurring roughly between 1995 and 2005. And this was the period when the personal computer was joined together with web browsers, the internet search engines, uh, flat screens, and broadband connections. That all happened in a very fast um, set of transitions. The first commercially viable web browser was in 1995. First personal computers were in the 1980s, but they weren't hooked together. First email was in the late 1980s. Uh, so we had a tremendous transition in every office uh, throughout the land uh, from typewriters, paper, and file cabinets to uh, electronic keyboards, flat screens, tied together with broadband cables. Um, and so the world of the office and almost every kind of operation was different by 2005 than it had been uh, 10 or 20 years earlier. And the productivity statistics showed that. But once the laptop and the desktop uh, reached that interconnected level, and once the office had gotten rid of the typewriters and the filing cabinets and the great piles of paper, um, just so many businesses. I was uh, involved in an academic society uh, where we had elections every year. And it used to be we had to send out great piles of biographies of the candidates uh, all over the world in paper stacks. And that was replaced by internet access and got rid of the entire operation in our office of having to put together those stacks of paper and taking them to the post office. Uh, so that's just one example. But since 2005, productivity growth has slowed down again. And I think it's primarily because uh, the world had made that transition. Another transition that was happening at the same time in everyday life was the uh, switch from paying cash or writing checks in department stores and supermarkets to credit card credit cards with instantaneous authorization of the credit cards and barcode barcode scanning of the items in the supermarket uh, that was pretty much in place by uh, 1995 or 2005 and so the retail sector um, made a big improvement in productivity uh, the transition to Walmart and its super efficient management of its inventories uh, happened in this uh, same period. Um, so far, we have not seen uh, any parallel benefit in productivity of the of the transition to e-commerce. Uh, and I think that is in part because e-commerce involves not just the packaging of the goods and the um, enormous warehouses, but it also requires a person to drive a truck toward your house that replaces with paid work what you used to do for free when you drove to the store on your own time. And I think that's one possible explanation of something a little bit puzzling, which is why the e-commerce has not given us a, a major revival of productivity the way the personal computer did. And one takeaway I took from your book, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, was that if I was born in 1870 and I was looking back in 1940, I would have experienced 
much more significant, substantial change in that lifetime than I would if I was, say, born in 1940 and looking back in 2010. So then the question we're left with is, why were the post-war inventions less important and less impactful? I think this is related to my previous answer about why things slowed down after eighteen after 1970. Uh, and that's because uh, we had exploited most of the great inventions, the internal combustion engine, the uh, the ele- electricity and its use in uh, business as well as manufacturing. Um, just by coincidence recently, um, in my local barber shop, I came across something very precious and valuable that they didn't appreciate, but I did, and I took it home. And that was somebody had left a 1948 copy of Life magazine. Uh, now, this is fascinating for a number of reasons, including the incredibly low prices. Uh, this Life magazine was a great big format magazine uh, that had about 150 pages, and the cost of the magazine was 20 cents, uh, and, a, and a subscription for a full year was $6. So this magazine told us a lot about inflation, uh, but it told us a lot about other things as well. And you look through the pages of um, the advertisements, um, and if you imagine comparing that to a magazine of 1870, there was just no comparison. Almost everything in the Life magazine of 1948 had been invented since 1870. But to our eyes today, looking at that Life magazine, of 1948, there were automatic washing machines, there were television sets, uh, there was air travel, uh, and and so the just the order of magnitude of the changes. And Life magazine didn't show us any indoor bathrooms or toilets, uh, but that was something that they uh, took for granted by 1948, uh, which they would have cherished if they'd even known about it in 1870. It would be unwise of me not to sort of start to finish out this interview without asking you about artificial intelligence and its potential to equal the types of innovations that you've described in what you call the Great Leap Forward. And I know you've done recent work on this, not just the book in 2016, but you've also done a paper recently looking at the productivity slowdown in the years since uh, the great financial crisis. In your view, is artificial and potential equal to those types of innovations? And how has productivity performed in the last 12 years, bearing this in mind? Well, we know how productivity has behaved in the last 12 years, and that is uh, it slowed down from the 1.5% of the 70s and 80s down to about 1%. Uh, So just think of the difference. Back uh, 3% between 1920 and 1970 means that our economy uh, triples in its productivity in uh, 23 years. Sorry, it doubles in 23 years. If it's growing at only 1% as it has in the last decade or so, uh, it takes 70 years to double instead of 23 years. So progress is just much, much slower. Um, And compound arithmetic makes that contrast even even greater. Uh, So uh, we've had a slowdown. Is artificial intelligence going to come to the rescue? I had a debate with uh, my good friend, Eric Brynjolfsson, the the advocate of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, uh, fully 10 years ago. And he said the Fourth Industrial Revolution has arrived, and yet 
productivity growth since that debate in the last 10 years has been the mere uh, 1%. Everyone is talking now about chat GPT and the so-called large language models that write essays uh, and create images. Uh, and I think this will indeed uh, replace some jobs and lead to a increase in productivity, but it's not going to be of the order of magnitude as the arrival of the internet and the World Wide Web. Um, what I see happening is, uh, first of all, we're going to have a big increase in the productivity of software code writers because uh, ChatGPT can write computer code. We're going to have an increase in the productivity and therefore a loss of jobs of people who do images. Um, I was reading recently about uh, the threat of artificial intelligence to artists who design covers of books uh, or who do illustrations for magazines that may now be automated. But when I think about uh, ChatGPT and the large language models, I, first of all, appeal to uh, a division in our economy into three different categories. Uh, we have the the making of goods, including manufacturing, agriculture, mining, utilities, and construction. Um, that's not going to be influenced at all by large language models. People are still going to have to nail nails um, and uh, dig mines uh, or pump oil uh, or uh, build wind uh, wind machines for renewable energy. Uh, another big category of work is contact services. Uh, the people who stock the shelves in the retail markets, the people who bring you the food in the restaurant. Uh, robots are making very slow progress in those areas. Um, and ChatGPT, just the ability to uh, write essays or design menus is going to have a negligible impact on productivity. So that leaves the third part of the economy, and that's people who basically sit at computers, either at home or in the office, uh, and design strategy, marketing, planning, financial advice. And there will be uh, some uh, some impact. Um, but somebody has to tell the uh, large language models what to do. And somebody has to check the output for errors, uh, inappropriate uh, dragging of facts from the internet that may not be applicable to the given situation. Uh, and so it's not going to be completely free of human input. Um, I think there's a chance that productivity growth in the 30% um, of the people who work in the creation of words and uh, images and knowledge uh, and information uh, will increase in productivity. It's already the part of the economy that's experiencing the best productivity performance of the last uh, three or four years. And I think that will uh, continue. We may nudge up uh, in terms of the overall economy back to the one and a half percent that characterized that uh, long period in the 70s and 80s. Your view is unlikely the continuation, as you've said, of the growth in the productivity that we've had, particularly during the high points of productivity over the last, say, 100 years. And you've listed a number of headwinds, which is a really enjoyable section at the end of your book, that part three of what are these headwinds and are there any policies or accidents that might actually change the more pessimistic view to a more optimistic one? 
Well, that's a big question. And let me tell you what the headwinds are uh, without telling you uh, how to solve them. Uh, that's a separate question, and the solutions differ for each one. But let me just tell you some of the obstacles to future growth. And, and they're a continuation of things that have been a problem already. Uh, the first one is rising inequality, the growth of incomes at the top and the stagnation of incomes uh, at the bottom. Um, that has many causes. Um, the At the top, we have the economics of superstars, the incredible uh, amounts being paid to sports and entertainment stars. We have the fact that chief executive officers of corporations who used to make 30 times more than average workers now make 300 times more uh, than average workers. Um, and we have the role of the stock market. Uh, the stock market is a proportion of uh, total output in the economy of total incomes has more than doubled in the last 30 years. It may not happen anymore, uh, so the increase in inequality may have already happened. In addition, we have a stagnation of incomes at the bottom. Uh, we still have the refusal of the federal government to raise the federal minimum wage. We have the weaknesses of labor unions with the recent UAW uh, and actor strike being an exception. Um, unions still only represent six or seven percent of workers in the private sector. Um, and uh, we have the uh, continuing role of of outsourcing of of American factories closing down because of the role of of imports uh, or the loss of good paying union jobs to automation, to the replacement of workers by machines, which of course has been going on for 200 years. Uh, but it's hitting in particular the people in the middle with uh, good middle-class incomes who all of a sudden find themselves uh, forced to take on menial uh, uh, low-skilled jobs. So that's inequality. Uh, the second headwind is education. The fact that we've already achieved the transition from um, a population uh, that was had not completed high school to a population now almost universally with maybe 90% has completed high school. Uh, we seem to be running out of room to increase the share of people who have completed four-year college. Uh, that's partly because of the lack of funding of more positions in four-year colleges, but uh, enrollments are declining. And that's partly because of the enormous cost of four-year college, uh, the cost going up, both because of the endless addition of more and more administrators instead of faculty members, and uh, the fact that state universities have been starved of funding by state legislatures. So it's just more and more expensive. People have taken out enormous amounts of debt uh, to put their children through college or the students themselves are going with a lot of debt. Uh, so the prospects for getting big productivity bonuses like those of the 20th century from increasing educational attainment are running out. The next headwind is demography. Uh, the fact that we have, at least over the uh, years that I forecast, which were from 2015 to 2040, we have the continuing retirement of the baby boom generation. Uh, so we have a reduction in the share of the population that is working and paying taxes, an increase in the share of the population that is retired and drawing social security and um, 
Medicare benefits. And this overlaps with the fourth headwind, which is uh, the fiscal drag. Now, we've we've heard a lot about the enormous increase in the government deficit and the debt to GDP ratio. Um, this has been exacerbated by higher interest rates in the last couple of years. People didn't worry about it too much when interest rates were one or two percent. But when interest rates are five percent, uh, we're we're now spending more money on interest in the federal budget than we are in the Defense Department. And then the fifth headwind, which is one that's uh, harder to talk about uh, because it's uh, pretty controversial, and that is the uh, decline in the uh, living conditions uh, of people at the bottom. And by that, I don't mean income. I mean two different categories. One of them is the um, decline in marriage, the de decline in the uh, percent of uh, couples who have children who are actually married. Um, a, this was first brought out by the Moynihan Report more than 50 years ago, uh, but it's become an epidemic. Um, we know from uh, a number of studies that children who lack fathers uh, do not do well in terms of discipline in school, in terms of future crime, in terms of future educational attainment. We know that 60% uh, of American college students are female, only 40% are male. And this is partly because uh, males don't have fathers uh, as they're uh, growing up. And, and uh, another part of this decline in living standards uh, and upward mobility of uh, at the bottom uh, comes from what Anne Case and Angus Deaton called deaths of despair. Um, for whatever reason, uh, including the loss of these jobs to imports and automation that I talked about earlier, uh, we have enormous increase in deaths from suicide, alcohol, and especially from drugs. Uh, we have the epidemic now with fentanyl. Uh, we have the opioids. Um, and so we now have more than 100,000 people dying every year uh, purely through uh, drug overdoses. And those are uh, very disproportionately people who uh, don't have a high school education, and particularly those who don't have a high school, I mean, don't have a college education. Um, so those are the five headwinds. I haven't talked about solutions because I think the solutions are uh, very difficult. We know that Congress can't even uh, get enough money together to fund the federal government past uh, two days from now, uh, much less deal with the long-run consequences of rising debt. Um, we know that uh, you can't um, have more than 100% of the people as college graduates. And speaking of college graduates, a good number of them can't find college-type jobs when they graduate and wind up as baristas in Starbucks. Uh, so I'm much better at describing problems than I am at finding solutions. I think uh, one thing that I might have mentioned in talking about the headwinds is that the United States is different in a number of respects from the so-called rich countries of Western Europe uh, and Japan, including your uh, country of Ireland. Um, we have of course, many more deaths from guns because of our absurd uh, lack of gun control. Uh, we have a much lower life expectancy, as Case and Deaton have recently emphasized, for people who lack a college education. Um, our college-educated people have 
a life expectancy comparable to those in Western Europe, uh, comparable to everybody in Western Europe. But our population that lacks a college education, which is two thirds of them, uh, have a life expectancy a good four or five years shorter uh, than those in in Europe. And that's not just because of the opioids and the suicides uh, and the guns. It's also because of our lack of universal health care and the uh, lack of equal provision of hospitals and doctors uh, in the areas of, of poverty and the areas of rural America. Um, and so when we talk about solutions to America's problems, I look first to Western Europe and Japan and I say, what can we copy? What can we learn uh, from what goes right there? Not everything is right over there. Productivity growth is just as slow in Western Europe as it is in the United States, if not slower. Um, most of the world's companies that are most highly valued on the stock market that have taken advantage of the invention of the internet, like Amazon, Apple, Meta, and uh, Alphabet, Google, are all American. And the world, when it turns its computers on, is largely using American inventions and American software. So not all is wrong with the United States, but most of the fruits of these inventions have gone to people at the top. Uh, what we do about the people at the bottom, I think we have a lot to learn from other countries. And that's a good way to conclude. Professor Robert Gordon, it's been an absolute honor to speak to you. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time. Mm -hmm.